Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Deal Quest community, this week we have another solo cast, and I want to talk about a topic that we've touched on before, but maybe not in exactly this way or this depth on this particular aspect of it. So we've obviously talked about due diligence a bunch with guests and on the solo cast at various points throughout 200-something episodes, 230, 40 episodes. I mean, I saw another article recently. It says startup CEO charged in a $175 million fraud case. And this is a situation where now I, I'll say up front that this entrepreneur was charged. She has pleaded not guilty. As far as I know, there's been no resolution in the matter yet. Um, so, you know, presumption of innocence, all that kind of stuff. So everything I say is is what's been alleged. But for the purposes of the discussion we're going to have here on fraud and due diligence and how you avoid it and, and how it comes up in deals, you know, I'm just using this as a jumping off point. It actually doesn't really matter whether, you know, she's particularly guilty or not. But uh, apparently this Charlie Javis, who was featured as uh, a Forbes magazine 30 under 30 honoree, was arrested in New Jersey for lying about the number of customers a company serviced with its student loan assistance program, according to the DOJ. And so she lied to J.P. Morgan Chase and fabricated data that these are the allegations, fabricated data to support those lies in order to make over $45 million from the sale of her company. And the company sold for a lot more. I think that was just her piece of it. And basically, the allegation is that she had some data scientists sort of you know, create false numbers that you know backed up this supposed uh, you know user base she had. And it's really, really interesting because you know, we talk a lot about financial due diligence and legal due diligence and even cultural due diligence and and you know all this stuff. So we talk about alignment and you know our, for our investment advisor clients and investment philosophy. You know, we talk about you know in other industries, it's just a matter of you know, do you do whatever the key business aspects are? Do they align? Can they mix? You know, uh, on the client basis appropriately to c- come together. But you know, on the more sort of hard due diligence side, you're doing regulatory legal due diligence, you're doing contract due diligence, you're doing financial due diligence. And you sort of, you know, wonder how some of these things get pulled off. I mean, obviously, you know, a huge one in recent years was the whole Theranos scandal with Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani, who were both convicted and and are, you know, in jail. Or and in that case, as, as I'm, I can't imagine most people, listeners here, almost every listener doesn't know, there was also, you know, major fraud that went on in terms of the blood testing 
and uh, the fact that this technology to do blood testing, you know, to test for all these things in a much more inexpensive and simple and easy way turned out to be a fraud for the most part. And, you know, they were using regular methods and trying to, you know, pass it off as that, them, they were, you know, as their own methods. They were, you know, getting bad results, all this stuff. And they raised, you know, all kinds of venture capital, right? Tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. So you sort of wonder how these sophisticated investors or buyers or banks like a JP Morgan Chase, you know, how you would think that they wouldn't fall for these things. I mean, listen, maybe, you know, in an Enron situation where also obviously there was fraud, but it was a complicated scheme of offshore companies and moving money back and forth and, you know, and and artificially sort of, sort of you know, creating creating profit. Maybe you say, well, that's that's super sophisticated. But you know, it comes down to something that's the truth is, you know, is due diligence is is not easy, especially if somebody is actively willing to, you know, go into to the level of fraud. I mean, listen, sometimes you, you can miss stuff on due diligence, even if there's not fraud, even if people are just trying not to, you know, it's not outright fraud, but maybe, you know, they're, they're spinning things in a, in a more positive way, you know, than it is. And there's always a question in terms of deal flow and deal pace and Maybe there are competitors for the deal. Maybe there are other business reasons to get the deal closed, especially, you know, in some of these bigger deals, right? You know, public companies sometimes are trying to meet numbers for for their shareholders, you know, private companies maybe who are venture back to looking, you know, are have this pressure to grow. And maybe things get scamped. Maybe at times there are incompetent professionals. But I think most of the time it's actually not that. Most of the time, it's just frankly. You know, difficult. So let you know. Let's look at. I mean, so for example, in Theranos situation, going back to that, there were apparently a number of people in inside and whatever that had their doubts. So you know, it's probably difficult for. Um, so let, let's take a step back. Fundamental due diligence. You do financial due diligence, right? You do legal due diligence. A lot of that's not going to turn up whether the technology is working. So, you know, are you going to get other scientists in there to see the data? Well, you should. I mean, you should. You should have an independent firm if you are an investor, right? That, you know, have some independent evidence that you know that it works. But of course, there's always things about IP secrecy and things like that. And what happens is certain investors get involved, and you automatically think there's credibility based upon the fact that this big venture capitalist or this big name person is involved. And certainly, if you're an investor who's tagging along, I mean, listen, if I'm writing a twenty-five thousand dollar check into an investment that I put in because I think it's a good deal, but I, I pro- I'm probably following a lead investor or, or maybe, you know, at the stage I'm in, you know, if I'm investing that little, for example, it might be at a pre-seed stage, right? Where there's, there's not even much to do diligence, due diligence on, right? You know, it's 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 concept stage. It's, I mean, I've, I've, I've been an investment recently into a tech thing that we know. I mean, they're still figuring it out and building the tech. We think they have a solution. I did speak with a I have a friend who invests in the company as well, who is in the tech, you know, understands the tech way more than I do. And on his evaluation, he thinks the tech is working and he's hoping it will scale. I mean, you know, he said that's going to be the real test. But, you know, later on, if I'm investing that, so I know at this point, um, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, right? But if I'm coming in, you know, even later on, and most of the time, you know, in in a later round, I'm talking about a real VC round as opposed to a, a pre-seed kind of round. You know, there's going to be a lead investor or, or investors, right? Lead funds, VCs, and 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 if I like the concept and everything, they're going to be the ones who are leading the due diligence effort, right? I'm not, you know, as a smaller investor, I'm not going to be able to go in on my own and get my own experts in there and do what I want. So I'm going to, 
you know, I'm going to trust the the lead investors and, you know, and, you know, what have, what have they done to test it? In this case here that I just mentioned with this $175 million fraud case, you know, apparently what they said was they were, I'm assuming this is a company that mainly got that valuation based upon how many folks they assisted. Now, what's difficult for me to understand, and I, and I, and I will admit that the article is pretty skimpy, you know, in terms of detail, and maybe it'll come out, but you would think if they're significantly inflating the numbers of households of students that they've helped with this loan assistance program, that it would, that the financial due diligence would match, right? In other words, in a tech company, you can easily get involved in this because there may not be revenue yet, right? Let's say, let's take a, you know, example of many, many, many of the apps, right? Even some of the big ones, like, you know, the Instagrams, right? And the TikToks and, and whatever, you know, a lot of these models are to gain, you know, gain eyeballs, gain users before they have any kind of significant monthly recurring revenue. And they raise significant dollars, you know, before that, because the way that game is played is that you aren't uh, necessarily creating significant revenue in the beginning, right? That's not the model. But in a company like this, where they were, I'm sure they're not doing the student loan assistance programs for free, right? It's not a freemium model like a tech play. So one thing I have a question on is, well, how did that not flow through to the numbers? In other words, if you are doing a certain number of uh, student loan assistance programs, then maybe you have a few different programs, different price points, but, you know, and your average price per project or per person or however it's divided up is X, you know, it's pretty straight math to figure out, wait a second, have we tied out? Why do they say they're doing X number of these things when the revenue would only support a tenth of that? So that's one question I have in this particular case. But let's say for some reason, you know, you couldn't catch it on the financial side. Let's say it is more of a, you know, a freemium model where you're trying to, you know, just get eyeballs or get bandwidth or get uptake before you go behind a paywall or something like that. You know, how do you get in? I mean, you know, if somebody is falsifying your numbers, how deep are you going to, you know, send people in? Are you going to send in, you know, due diligence to really, I mean, in theory, you should be able to look at, right, the from se- from prospect to sale to close to contract to money or no money, you know, to service, you know, to what it takes to service those clients. And there would be evidence, you would think, of that, right? Everything from, you know, how many leads came in, right? Because at the level of this fraud, it's, I don't know if this is true or not, but it could be that, you know, Maybe the, the the supposed sales even exceeded the number of leads they had, or maybe if it did, you know, the if the expected ratio of closing on leads is five or ten percent or twenty percent, whatever the number is, and you know, maybe you could find it that way. Maybe you can look at what it would cost. I mean, in terms of like time, in terms of personnel to deliver this much, and see that maybe the personnel, you know, the number of people working, the salary, the payroll, the cost of delivery doesn't match up. You can even go in and and test. Now, you're not going to, you know, I don't know what the, I forget the article might have mentioned, but I don't know how much they uh, they supposedly had, you know, in terms of these, they say they fabricated data, but it doesn't necessarily show how much, you know, like how many people they said. They, oh, yeah. Texas also allegedly purchased real data on 4.25 million college students who tried to pass it off as her own data. Okay. So that's interesting. So, so there's a fake database. So, I mean, you could go in, you're not going to go through how many thousands or tens of thousands, whatever folks are in the database, but 
you might test, right? There are ways you can go into due diligence and say, hey, we're not going to go through the 5,000 people in the database, but we're going to take 50 of them or 100 of them or 500, you know, probably not 500. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to check. And, you know, it's very possible that, I mean, I don't know what levels of due diligence were done here. I don't know if there's anybody else in terms of other professionals who are going to run into trouble, you know, based upon this. Sometimes the auditors run into trouble, you know, when, when these kind of things come up. But it makes you think about, you know, if you are in a position, if you're buying a company, if you're investing in a company, even if you're doing another kind of deal, a joint venture, a strategic alliance, or, you know, or a licensing deal, what is the level of due diligence that you, you know, that you need to do? Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Now let's get into a, a topic here that I talk about a lot with my clients and listen, this is where those business decisions do come in. You know, doing due diligence costs time. It costs money. And in the far, far majority of deals, you're not going to see this kind of fraud. So the question is on the trade-off, right? Are you going to go in and take the time and money and slow the pace of the deal to do the level of testing that would avoid every possible fraud? The answer is no. So the question is where you draw the line, right? Let's say the let's say the other side is resistant to give you giving you access to their customer base because you know the only time that that matters to you in terms of true due diligence would be to have that access prior to closing and then what if the deal doesn't close and you know they don't want to know there's a lot of legitimate reasons why a seller for example in an M and A deal would not want the buyer to have direct access to its client and customer base. Because one word may get out that they're in play even before the deal is closed. Two, you know, they might be worried about stealing data and things like that. Now, listen, there are all kinds of contractual and other ways in agreements. I mean, you know, you're not going to do an MA deal if it's not an NDA agreement to start with. And hopefully you're doing a deal with a reputable person and you should be able to get by some of those concerns. But some of the other concerns like cost, like pace of deal things like that, like the practical trade-offs you always have to make in deal-making in various aspects of it are going to have you not do every piece of due diligence that could prevent every fraud ever, right? Certain fundamental things, obviously, you should be doing, right? You know, in addition to looking at every contract and looking at the numbers, obviously, you should be running background checks on all the key players and on the applicable company, right? To see if they've been crooks before, you know, if they have financial issues, if they have bankruptcies, if they have litigation, if they have, if they've been sued, if they have, have had a civil reg- regulatory or administrative or criminal aspects before. But, you know, that, that doesn't, just because that comes back clean doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, my guess is if you ran that on Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, or maybe this Charlie Javis from, you know, from this, this home loan, I mean, not the student loan assistance company, that they might have come back very, very clean, right? Maybe they've never had an issue, you know, before. And sometimes it's, I don't know how to say this, because ultimately, if they do commit for it, they, they do ultimately become crooks. But but there are some people who are bad people, you know, just really, they have bad intentions from the beginning. 
And then there's sometimes where, frankly, and I'm not saying this to justify anything, but sometimes there it's, you know, it's somebody just because of the pressure, because of, you know, they, they don't intend to do something that becomes fraudulent, right? But along the way, maybe they're, they're feeling pressure with their investors or their, you know, whatever it is, you know, they take a few liberties and then it becomes a little more, you know, I've seen this in situations where companies have what were very trusted members, maybe even around for a long time of their team who embezzled from the company, right? And and maybe they just run into a personal financial situation and they temporarily, you know, take some funds and they figure and they think they'll get it back and then they get, get into a downward spiral. And again, I'm not saying that any way to justify it. I'm just saying that in terms of due diligence, there may be, there may not be any significant signs in terms of the, you know, the character or the history of the founder or the or the person that that perpetrates these frauds that you can easily catch up front, right? Sometimes there's just been no signs before. Now we all think we, you know, we don't love to think that we can be great judges of character. If you look at the stats on on how many people are even write great interviews to be able to judge talent. When they're hiring people, it's actually not great. <laughs> you know, no matter how good we think it are, we're probably not as good as we think. But certainly, you know, in these cases, it's not. So it's an interesting question. And and like I said, I don't want to reiterate this. We hear about these fraud situations, and they become a big deal in part because they're pretty rare, right? I mean, I've been doing deals for 35 years, and I mean, I, I have we had some deals over the years that didn't end up working out because the you know, the, the, the people come together, couldn't get along, or maybe somebody overpaid for a deal or the economy went bad. Yeah, sure. But even that's not a very high percentage of our deals. And certainly, you know, outright frauds, I mean, I can hardly remember any, you know, where we were at least involved. Now, we're not, obviously, we're a microcosm and not necessarily, a, a you know, a perfect, you know, a perfect sampling. But I'm sure there are stats out there, which I have not looked up, you know, on the percentage of deals that fraudulent, I'm sure they're very, very small. So that sort of strategy decision and financial decision, and and it's not just finances because it is strategy, you know, in terms of other reasons why you may to get may want to get the deal done or or keeping that rhythm of a deal going. But it's an interesting dilemma on where you draw the line on the level of due diligence you're going to do, especially because you know the problem with these deals that well, there's fraud is although they're very, very, very rare, the downside of them is very, very big, right? I mean, Theranos went from being worth billions or whatever, I don't know how hundreds of millions, whatever the numbers were, right, to being worth zero, right? And my guess is if, if, if it plays out, especially if it plays out, you know, on this particular company, I mean, the purchaser who, you know, they're saying it's $174 million frauds. So I'm guessing maybe that was the total purchase price and 45 million of that went to, this founder, I'm not, I'm not 100 clear, but the point is that that you know they're saying it's 175 million dollar fraud case, which means that it's likely somebody's out 175 million. Now maybe, maybe because this is a case where they overstated the number of student loan assistance you know clients they had. You know, if it's overstated by four times, maybe there's still you know uh, that one in four or one in five, whatever it is, that number of clients, and there's some value to this business that some of the investors or the buyer will, you know, will be able to salvage. Maybe it's not totally worthless, but trust me, in most cases, it's a very, very significant loss. So when you're doing your own deals, I mean, part of it is you got to look at what the risk 
is, right? What the level of downside is if it turns out bad, what the odds of that happening are. Obviously, who you do the deal with matters a lot. And how, what would be the impact of that deal going bad, like really bad on your business, right? If the deal is just sort of, you know, if it's small and it's additive and and mostly what you're going to lose is just upside and time and energy and some money, that's very different than if you're doing a deal that for some reason becomes absolutely crucial to the survival of your business. And sometimes in those cases, if you're doing those kind of deals, you're doing it maybe because you're in trouble or because you don't have a lot of other alternatives. So then there are still, there are pressures to get that deal done and move along. And this, you know, risk in the future of an unlikely event of a fraud, you know, may, may not be the biggest driver. So, you know, I never advise my clients to make business decisions out of fear, especially fears of things that, you know, might happen and are not high percentage. You know, I think we should be always weighing risk. I've said this very, very frequently that you got to, one of the, you know, challenges that a lot of lawyers have is that they were, they were over indexed on risk. You always have to balance the opportunity and the upside with the risk. And that analysis comes in when you're doing due diligence. So, you know, you have to take into account cost, time, all that kind of stuff versus the real likelihood of fraud. And, you know, there's no magic formula and every deal is different. But, uh, you know, it made me think, I mean, I, I would say that on smaller deals, there's a leaning towards less due diligence than you really should do because sometimes smaller deals are more anxious to get them done. Plus there's more budgetary concerns. In very large deals, even though there have been very large deals that haven't worked out even and even not caught frauds, obviously, I think that's less true because the level of due diligence on bigger deals is usually pretty extensive and maybe sometimes could be overly extensive. But I think for the smaller and medium-sized players, it becomes a very, very interesting scenario here on you know what level of, of due diligence you do on either side. And the last thing I'll mention that's very, very interesting to me and I, you know, something I've alluded to as well. But you know, since we're on this fraud and due diligence side of things, I remember early in my career, when let's say you had an M and A deal where it was a big, big buyer buying a smaller company. Uh, obviously, the bigger company was, you know, would do a decent level of due diligence on the on the on the seller on the smaller company. But it was often hard to request, you know, anything beyond very basic due diligence on the on the bigger company. Because, you know, it was sort of like, well, we're Microsoft or we're IBM or we're, you know, whoever it was, right? You know, what, what do you need to do diligence on us? And one of the, I guess, small benefits or, or good benefits amongst all the bad that happened coming out of Enron and WorldCom and that whole stretch where these supposedly very successful companies went bad is it gave, I remember it was a talking point for me when we were representing the smaller companies often that we said, you know, I would be able to say, yeah, and, and that's what people thought about Enron and Walcom or whatever. So we need, you know, we need more due diligence on you. So interesting topic, no formulas, got to weigh the risk in terms of the other factors, all the other factors. But I would just say one of the lessons is beyond the financial and the legal and the cultural and whatever, you really want to get in there, right? Try, try if you possibly can. Let's say you're a buyer of a company where I try, if you possibly can, to speak to more of the employees than just the, you know, the limited management team. Now, there were good reasons for sellers, for example, management teams to resist that because they may not have announced it to their employees. But the more you can from that side of the table as a buyer, for example, 
get access to more people and ask the right questions, it's more likely you're going to pull this stuff up, right? The more, the more you can get the ability to run some tests, whether it's, you know, speaking to some clients, whether it's making sure you're really matching up the different, you know, if you look at a database of student loans that, you know, folks that were supposedly assisted, making sure you're matching that up against the, you know, against the, against the actual money. And what, and the last thing I'll say that that takes is a coordination amongst your professionals. You know, sometimes they have the accountants go in and do the financial due diligence. They have the lawyers come in, do legal due diligence. You know, the bankers have done some due diligence. The principals do some cultural due diligence, but there's not a good sharing of information where sometimes maybe you'll be able to see issues or patterns or inconsistencies if there was more communication amongst the professionals. So I'll leave that as my last point on this topic. And you can look out for next week and the next few weeks, we'll have guest interviews. And then, you know, we do the solo cast every fourth episode. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.